I think most of us are probably familiar with the phrase, he can't see the forest through the trees. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Uh, all the young people, no, we've never heard that. All the slightly older people uh, say, yes, they've, they've heard of that. Uh, if you've heard of that, can't see the forest through the trees. In essence, what it's saying is that sometimes you get so bogged down in the minute details of something that you fail to remember or understand what the, what the whole thing is, is about. You miss, you miss the whole and this can certainly happen in a lot of different areas of our life, one of them being the area of studying Scripture. You can actually begin to learn how to study the Scripture where you're not just reading long, large texts of, uh, uh, of Scripture, chapters at a time, books at a time, but rather to be able to sit down and begin to really understand how to study the text of Scripture. And you begin to break it down by its pericope and its paragraph and its sentence and its verbs. And you break it all down in here that sometimes you get to the end and you kind of lose track of what it is that the book is about or what it is that the author has been trying to uh, teach. And, and, and so we, we kind of are at that place here now with Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we're now coming to the conclusion of Philippians chapter 1, and we've really gone verse by verse and sentence by sentence through the whole thing, and I want to make sure that we know where we are. There's so many things that we've talked about so far. We've talked about what it means to be a servant of Christ. We've talked about what it means to be set apart and sanctified people of God uh, we, we, we've said in the series that, uh, that, that we, we see how a body, this church body, needs to be unified under one purpose, and that is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations and propagating the gospel. We even spent one week talking about how God will sometimes not only allow, but even design suffering for his people so that the gospel will be taken to places that they normally would have never gone apart from those difficulties. And of course, two weeks ago, if you were here, uh, you heard the, the infamous light sermon, lighting sermon, yes? Um, somebody's not laughing. But anyway, uh, we're just joking. It wasn't about lighting. It was, it was just about this. It was about uh, living for Christ and, and living like Christ. That means that, that we are willing to set apart uh, things that we want uh, in our preferences for the necessities and the good of other people. It's what Christ did when he gave his life on a cross, and it's what we're called to as well. So the question is, what does all that have to do with each other? Is there something that will pull all that together? One specific idea of what all of this is about, and Paul at the very end of chapter 1 lets us know what it is. Here it is. All of this is about one primary thing, and that is to live worthy of the gospel. To live worthy of the gospel. Look at verse 27 with me, if you will, in your Bibles. The Bible says there, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This chapter, this whole book is primarily about that one idea. Yes, he's writing to thank the, the Philippians for, for sending and being benevolent by sending him money and, and a huge gift that, that helped him to be able to make it and, and, and be able to sustain himself in prison there in Rome. And yes, he's writing about the joy of knowing Christ. And yes, he's writing uh, 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 so many different things. Um, but primarily, overall, what he's trying to help us to understand is what it looks like to live a mature Christian life, what it looks like to actually live a life consistent to the faith that we proclaim in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing there. What does it look like? In fact, when he uses the phrase, live worthy of the gospel, 
That phrase literally translated is to live as citizens. Now, we know so far that the Philippians are citizens of Rome, which means that they would have talked like Romans, they would have looked like Romans, dressed like Romans, they uh, would have participated in the Roman system of government. Uh, They also would have enjoyed all the privileges that came with being a Roman citizen, and there were many of them. But when Paul says to live as citizens, he's not referring to their Roman citizenship. He's referring to a greater citizenship. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 20, he he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Listen, I love being an American, yes? Love being an American. I thought that was going to get more of an applause than that. Uh, I mean, according to the big flag on the back of your car, I would have thought that would have been a roar. But, but, but yet we, we, we think, yes, we love uh, being Americans, but I'll tell you this, it pales in comparison infinitely to the infinite greatness of being a citizen of heaven and being a child of God. Amen? And so that's what we, that's what we thank God for above all Else. And so Paul is coming in, he's saying, hey guys, above all else, I want you to live as citizens in heaven. Now you know the way that you talk gives certain facts about yourself away. You, you understand that, right? I mean, uh, in other words, if, if, you were to, if I were to get up here and go, hey y'all, right, you would, it would say something about me. It would say that I'm probably from the south and I probably like to eat grits and maybe a couple other, you know, Ford hooks, if you know what that is. Uh, you probably like to, you probably know something about that. But if I got up and said, hey, you guys, you know, like that, then you would probably say, you ain't from around here, are you, right? And you'd say, no, you big Yankee, you know, I'm from Connecticut, and we don't, we don't eat grits, we eat cream of wheat, and we don't drink sweet tea, we drink hot tea with milk in it. I know it's weird, but that's, that's what we Yankees do, okay? And so, don't judge. I see that judgment. All right. And so that's, that's, it's just different. It tells us something about it. And what Paul is saying here is he says, look, our speech, our actions, and attitudes give away where we are from. Paul is saying, speak, act, and have an attitude as a believer and as a citizen of heaven. That's how our attitudes and actions ought to be. So when people see us, they hear us, whatever it is, they say, you're not from around here. Your citizenship belongs somewhere Else, and this is what he's calling us to do. Now, this idea of living worthy of the gospel is a consistent theme throughout Paul's writings and his epistles. He writes it in many different ways, but I love the way that he unpacks it in the book of Colossians because there he really shows us what that looks like. For example, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, he writes this. He's writing to believers and he's telling them that certain actions and attitudes are no longer fitting to who they are now in Christ. He says it this way. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Paul loves this dynamic of new self, old self, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 there, he says that you are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so what he's doing here in Colossians 3 is he's saying he's kind of uh, referencing our attitudes and actions as, as a type of clothing. He, he's saying there, he goes, hey, look, as, 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 a, as a lost person, when you were lost, you were wearing clothing, attitudes and actions that were consistent with who you were. 
But you're no longer who you were. You're now a child of God, a citizen of heaven. So he encourages them to put off those old things and now put new things on. In verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Do you, see, do you see the dynamic there? Don't live like you used to live, who you used to be. Now live in light of the gospel that you profess to believe. We know the Bible tells us what that looks like. I remember um, growing up in our home, my mom and dad got divorced when I was about six, seven years of age. And uh, my dad got custody of me, my brother, and my sister. Some of you know a little bit about the story. The story's not super important except for this is later in my life as I began to have children, I went back to my dad and I began to say, Dad, how, how did you know how to raise us? How did you know how to become a, a, a godly father and raise us in the admonition of Christ? Now, the reason I asked him this is because if you ever go to a Christian bookstore, there is a plethora of books everywhere, right, on, on, on child rearing and how to raise a child and how to shepherd a child's heart and, and how to be a godly man. Well, back in the 70s, all right, they didn't have a whole lot of those, okay? Now, some of you are instantly thinking, wow, you are old, 70s. The other half is going, wow, what a young man. And I, I like you, all right? I prefer that. And so um, I'm like in no man's lo- zone in my age. You know, I'm not young. I'm not old. I'm like there, all right? And so, so, so what happens is I asked him, and, and, and my dad was not a, a scholar. A, a, you've, if you've met him, he's not a scholar when he was alive at any way, shape, or form. But in his way, this is what he basically said. He goes, well, after thinking, he goes, he goes son, he goes, all I know is I have a heavenly father. And as I read God's word, I guess what I did was whatever looked like him, I, I, I tried to add that. And whatever was in me that didn't look like him, I just tried to take away and ultimately die too. It's the same idea. Do you see that? We are not the same people who we used to be. And so the call for believers in Jesus Christ is simply this. Live consistently to the gospel that we profess to know and have changed our lives. This is what he's calling us to do. We say that Jesus has forgiven us, then let's live lives of thanksgiving to God for having forgiven us. We say that God has set us free from the bonds of sin, then let us do all we can short of shedding blood to be able to resist sin, as Paul says in the book of Hebrews. We're not talking about earning your salvation. We're not talking about let's be good so God receives us. We're saying because of God's wonderful grace of showing us that was demonstrated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's live in light of that glorious message, right? So that's what he's saying. He's summing all this up, saying live worthy of the gospel, but there's a second aspect of this. He says not only are we to live worthy of the gospel, but we are to live worthy of the gospel at all times. See, he's broadening broadening this even further. Now, notice what he says here. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Once again, Paul believes that he's going to be set free. He doesn't know that for sure. But he believes that when he goes to court between, but before Caesar, that he is going to be released at this point. But he can't be certain. But he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm released and I come back to you, or if I die, or if I remain in prison, 
What I want to know and what I want to hear is that you are continually living the life of Christ. So there's kind of a situational thing here. Whether I'm there or whether I'm not there, I want to know that you are following Jesus. This is kind of a principle that we see all the time. Uh, if you think about it, it's true that the, that the presence of authority has an impact on our behavior. Does it not? The presence of authority has an impact on our behavior. If you're a parent, you know this very well. You know when you're sitting down trying to relax and something is going on in that other room. You don't know what it is. There is banging, there is clanging, there is screaming, there is torment, there is something going on in that other room, and you finally, after you and your wife are finally like, you gotta do it, you gotta do it, you gotta, okay, finally you get up, and dad gets up, and he goes, and he opens up the door, and it's a miracle. The moment that door opens, instant silence, right? Instant innocence in, in the eyes of everyone around, all the calamity, all the chaos, all of a sudden, structure, all looking up at you, going, what? What, what, what? We didn't do it, right? right? It's the presence there. Uh, don't tell the staff this. Dan's not in here. Um, uh, I don't think Chris, I don't think any of our, just between me and you, okay? Don't tell the, because the, 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 some of you do tell when I say, don't tell. That's the, my point of not telling. I got a feeling that, li listen, and I love our staff because they work so hard. You, you'd be very proud of them. I tell them, listen, high accountability on staff. We need to be working diligently hard because we're serving not only God, but we're serving God's people. And we know that it's a privilege to be able to do so. So we have a lot of accountability of where they're going, what we're doing, how much work we're spending, all of that very important stuff. But I got a feeling that when I leave, the party is on. I just, I got, I'm telling you, all I picture when I leave, when I drive away here, usually on Sunday after I get done preaching, I get in that car, I'm picturing them breaking out the pinatas, the sombreros, and the margaritas, all right? Uh, I'm, just, I'm just joking. I'm joking. Don't get upset. There's no way that Nick would wear a sombrero, okay? So there's no way. So, so oh, oh, yeah, okay. So there's no way. There's a way. Okay, see, stuff like that, when that happens... Now, when you guys ask me what sermon this is, you're going to say, what was the sombrero message? The sombrero message. It's, again, it's not about a sombrero or Nick and his sombrero, okay? It's none of that. But the idea there is, look, you see this again. You see it all, all day. You jump on 95. You're going to work. Jump on 95. And, you know, we as Christians, we make sure that we, we Christian speed. That's 75 miles an hour, five minutes over the speed limit. Everybody knows that nobody pulls you over. You can do that. You know, we're grace people. And so we're driving down the road. And, 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 and as we do, I mean, people are passing you like you are sitting still. You know, it's like, boom, boom, boom. And you're going by and going, how, how, fast, how fast am I going, right? 74 miles per hour, all right, Christian living. And so we're, we're, we're driving. But then sometimes you get on there. Is this not true? You get on there, and there's like a whole pack of cars. And, and you're like, why are we all going 69 miles an hour? What in the world's going on here? And then you look, and then all of a sudden, you look, and getting off as the highway patrolman, off to the thing. And what happens? Everybody lose, leaves their mind and leaves you in the dust, right? There is this truth that authority brings about accountability in a sense. Uh, it, it has an impact on our actions when it's present. Apparently, this is a little bit of what was going on with Paul and the Philippians. It's a wonderful church, great church, but, but he, he, he acknowledges that when he is there, they are upping their game and living for Christ like never before. But there is a little bit of lax when he leaves. Not, not a far drawing off, 
but he's not simply there. And this is what Paul is encouraging them to do. He says, listen, whether I'm there or not there is insignificant. You living this Christian life is not about you living it in church. This idea of living worthy of the gospel is to no matter where you go that you're living it. And Paul is requesting of them. He says, listen, he goes, whether I'm there or here, whatever I hear, and Paul hears a lot of things. He's got these little spies, people like Epaphroditus, Timothy, Titus, Luke, who seem to keep coming back to him, telling him what these churches are doing. You're like, you know, tattletale, you know. And they come back and they tell him, and he either writes rebuke to these churches or sometimes he writes Praise, just like the letter that we're studying in the book of Philippians. But what he tells him is this. He goes, man, whether I'm there or not, live worthy of the gospel that you proclaim and you profess to hold to and to be changed by. You know, I think of our men and, and I think of our ladies. And, and here's just a simple thing is we, we want to be living it in the spotlight, but we want to be living it in the shadows as well. I know that we have a lot of men that travel in their job, and, and you want to, I, I want you to know that your pastor prays for you because the place of a road without accountability is a place of great temptation for a man. From whether he's going, where he's going, when he's going, when he's in the hotel room, all of those things. And men, men when you're in that hotel room and, and there's a desire and there's a temptation there for you to watch something that you're not supposed to be watching, whatever it is. What Paul is saying, what God is saying is live worthy of the gospel there. Live worthy of the gospel there. Stop and I think of maybe some others who, who, who maybe some women who are kind of, they're talking with their BFF on the phone and you know, and, and we think, hey, we're, best, we're BFF, so we can say anything. But I believe that even those conversations need to be redeemed. And as you're sitting there and you're like, hey, listen, I'm just kind of dumping on you. And, 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 and you, the things that you're saying is really costing at the expense of somebody else. What God is saying, ladies, is that it's not just here that he wants you to be living a life worthy of the gospel. It's there that you ought to be living it. Young men and women, you had a great weekend, and that's wonderful. But what you're going to be challenged with one day is no longer being with your parents. And what we want you to understand is we're not trying to teach you law. The, the law and the do's and don'ts are simply a tutor for you to know that you need Jesus. You'll never live up to that. But when you are removed here and when, when you go somewhere else, if you have a life with Christ, we know that that will keep you. We're not teaching law here. We're teaching the love of the Father and love of Jesus Christ in light of all that he's done for you. Who are you when nobody else is looking? That's what Paul is telling us all. And so what, what I'm saying is, look, we're about to have the Lord's Supper. And, and the truth of the matter is, before we take of the Lord's Supper and, and publicly proclaim our belief in the gospel, that's what we're doing, his blood and his body taking part. What we need to do is we need to do work in us to see if there are areas in our life, maybe at times, that we're not submitting to him. So we are to, what is Paul's thing? To live worthy of the gospel and to live worthy of the gospel at all times. Here's broadening it even further. To live worthy of the gospel not only at all times, but to live worthy of the gospel in all circumstances. Now, I think what Paul is about to do, when as I'm reading through this text, this last part, I think he's anticipating an objection from the Philippians when they're reading this. 
Remember how it would work. They'd have one letter and they would go inside the church and they would begin to read it out to the people in the church. And as they begin to read it, uh, they would begin to kind of engage in this and they would begin to think just like you're thinking now, right? right? You'd be thinking and, and as they're reading it, at this particular point, as Paul is saying, hey, I want you guys to live a life worthy of the gospel, there's some objections that are coming up in their mind. And what they're in essence saying is they're saying, but Paul, you don't understand what you're asking. You're telling me to live in light of the truth of the gospel and all that is in the word of God, but you have no clue what it is that we're going through right now. And what Paul is saying here is this, and so what Paul says to him is he, he anticipates this objection and he immediately adds that, same, that last sentence when he says, and not frightened in any way by your opponents. Let me unpack that. What he's saying is Paul knew that the Philippians were facing strong opposition. They were suffering for their walk with Jesus Christ. They were suffering because they followed Jesus Christ, not because they were doing right, but because wrong, because, but because of what they were doing right. And they begin, there's a danger of them falling into the same problem that you and I fall into and the same trap that you and I have fallen in many times. Here it is. It is that we begin to sit there and say, man, I've heard all this teaching. I know what the word of God says about all this. But Mike, there are certain circumstances in my life that are so hard, that are so difficult, that are so beyond the norm, that there's no way that God would expect me to live according to the truth of the word of God, not in my situation, not in this situation. So this is what Paul has to do. He has to, he has to deal with this. And what Paul is saying is, I'm telling you that the will of God for your life is to live worthy of the gospel at all times, and yes, in every circumstance, even the circumstance that every one of you and myself are living right now, what would that have meant for the Philippians? It would have meant this, that they had received the teachings of Jesus of the gospel to love their enemies, to pray for those who spitefully persecute them. And they're sitting back going, listen, guys, they are being imprisoned, they are beaten, they are being robbed by these people, and now they're supposed to pray, forgive, and love those people who are doing that to them. How, how real is this to us, right? How many people probably sit here and are thinking to themselves, hey, listen, I've been in the same place. Certainly, when God gives these instructions, he doesn't mean this particular type of situation. And Paul is saying that's exactly it. So here's how... Paul encourages them. He tells them, yes, this is the circumstance that you need to be living it out. But then in verse 12, he lets them know that they're not alone. Or excuse me, in verse 30. He says in verse 30, he goes, that they are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me explain what he's saying. He's saying, hey, look, you, I'm not telling you to do something that I'm not doing myself or that I haven't done, or that I'm not doing in the future. This is not one of those do as I say, uh, not as I do type things. You know, we, we, we always love that, right? And I had a professor, it was the president of our seminary, and he'd go, there will be no dogs in the apartments and on campus. And when he said that, there was a black lab laying underneath his foot in, in, in the classroom, right? And you're like, I have a hard time taking you seriously, you know, when you're saying this, right? And so, so we look at that, but Paul's not like that. Paul's letting them know, listen, you need to live a life worthy of the gospel, even, in the, even if it costs you suffering. And he goes, you saw me do it. Now, this is why it's important to understand and, and read the whole word of God, because what we find is in his list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 27, where he lists all the sufferings that he, that he, that he has lived through for the sake of the gospel, all the shipwrecks and the beatings. He, he mentions there that he is, was beaten with rods, not once, not twice, but three times. 
Now, that's significant because one of those beatings with those rods took place on his first missionary trip to Philippi. And some of those people that he is now writing who believe, perhaps when they were not born again, saw Paul receiving those blows with those rods. And what he was saying is, you saw me do the same thing. You saw me do what was hard, even when it would cause me suffering, because I wasn't being beaten for unrighteousness, but for being faithful to God. I'm calling you to do the same. And he says, and it was not only that you saw me then, now track with me, he says, but you also see me now. In fact, he's still in prison suffering for righteousness' sake. You know, I used to, I used to sit back and think to myself, I used to get passages like this and I don't know if you've done this too. Maybe some of you have done Sunday school or small groups a lot. And I would always get passages to suffering for our witness of Christ and standing for Jesus. And I hated preaching them. Not because they weren't the word of God, but I was like, we, how do we in America relate to this? How many, how many in here are losing jobs? Maybe somebody has losing jobs, losing their freedom. They're in prison and they're being beaten simply because they profess Christ to be Lord and Savior. And for years, I, I didn't know. Then you try to manipulate it a little bit. You're like, you know, sometimes, you know, you can't go to the party. And that's suffering for Jesus. And you're just trying to pull whatever it is out. That you, sometimes you can't cheat on your taxes and you're going to have to pay the man. Oh, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, suffering, you know, for doing what's righteous. And, and it's so hard. Let me, let, me, let me say two things. First of all, this is the first time in my life, and I haven't been around very long, but if, if, if first time in my life that I actually see the possibilities of this actually one day occurring. It's, it's the very first time, and I'm not trying to be overdramatic, and I'm not trying to do any of those things. What I'm, what I'm just suggesting is, it's probably for the first time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but what we have been able to see is that all of the election cycles, our judicial appointees, and the Supreme Court rulings of late have all been in opposition to Christian beliefs, every single one of them. I believe that we are outside of the age that we just experienced, which was a place of favoritism of Christians. Everything seemed to go the way, and many of us got lazy and fat during that time, and now I believe we are post that era. Now you are officially in the minority. As judgment after judgment comes down, it's going to continue to be against. Now, what should we do? Of course we should pray. We should pray, and we should hope that that's going to change. Will it? I don't know. It's up to God, but I do know this. It doesn't change anything for you and me. Because even if it says we're taking everything away or you will suffer or this is going to happen to you if you profess Christ or for me specifically to preach Jesus Christ, then guess what? Nothing changed. What do we do? Keep preaching Jesus Christ. Nothing changes. And so what happens is, and I was thinking of this as, as we're working through this, that we don't have to think about what may happen in the future to really apply this accurately to us. I think that there's immediate and direct implications for us as well. There are folks that are in our church and that, that, that are struggling and suffering within a marriage. They are in a very difficult marriage, very difficult, very hard, very almost beyond imagination in many ways. And for them, for, it'd be very easy for them to abandon and to be able to go their way. But 
if they are going to stay true to the call of their life. That that bond, and when they said, I do, that they were making a covenant relationship with that individual, which is to represent and demonstrate the unbreakable covenant between Christ and his church, then what they are going, and what God is asking them to do is to love somebody in the marriage that might be very, very much unlovable. That's where the rubber meets the road. I, I, think, of, I think of perhaps a young lady or a young man who is just unwilling, just unwilling to be able to compromise their beliefs, and because of that reason, they're single. And they've got everybody giving them a hard time, even asking, even their own parents, what's wrong with you? Why don't you settle down? And in everything that they try to do, they just sit back and they're going, I know what you're saying. I know what you're, you're throwing at me. But the bottom line is, I have to be faithful to my convictions and what it is that God ultimately says, God will, 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 will determine the outcome of this. Is there not a sense of suffering in each of those examples? suffering for righteousness sake and paul tells them look you're not alone i went through this as well he says but you need to keep going and then he gives this last word of encouragement can i give that to you then we'll take the lord's supper here's what he says he says this their suffering for righteousness sake is 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 a sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from god what he's saying is, is the fact that people are against you and opposing you and, 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 and trying to, to cause suffering for you simply because you're standing and living for Jesus, it is clear evidence that they are lost and that they are going to face the judgment of God, their actions. He says the actions that you are partaking in, the difficult decisions that you are making, knowing that you are going to suffer from making this decision and you don't know how long the suffering is going to go over, he goes, it is evidence of your salvation. Okay, listen to what he says next. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Did you just hear what he said? He just said that a blessing to you, the grace of God was extended to you that you believe. We know that the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ died for us and we raised from the dead, that we believe in Christ, placed our faith in him, we know that that's a gift. Would we agree? Second gift he gives you is a gift of suffering for righteousness' sake. It's heavy. But here's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is when a person, you, struggle, know that this decision that you make in obedience to God is going to cause suffering in your life loneliness, frustration, hardship, when you choose Jesus over that, it demonstrates that God has given you eternal life and faith to be able to believe. When I was a little kid, I'll wrap up with this. When I was a little kid, I remember uh, coming to faith in Christ. My dad led me to faith in Christ, and, and we were kind of, kind of that old school thing, which was fine, but it seemed almost like it, it really didn't take unless you walked the aisle. Okay, and we're all about that. Look, we're going to have an invitation in a minute. You want to get saved, man, come. We'll pray. We'll lead you in faith in Christ. But I just realized that, hey, in my own testimony, people can get saved by not walking the aisle. But basically what they said is, hey, listen, uh, you, need to, you need to go down there. And I was like, okay, oh, crud, you know, and everything. And so I went down, and you could picture me doing that. I walked down all by myself. And he says, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here because I believe in the full propitiation of Christ and the sanctification and glorification. No, I didn't say any of that, right? I just came up and said, I got saved. God saved me, right? 
And, and, and that's about it. And now, what God did in my heart was much more than that, but I just came for him. And this is what the pastor said to me. And I, God bless him. But this is what he said. Is he, he just sat down and he, and he told me, he goes, young man, I want you to remember this day. I want you to remember this day that you walked this aisle and you prayed this prayer. Don't you ever doubt your salvation again. You walking forward and you, and you praying this prayer is evidence that you are born again. And whenever your life goes on and you begin, now listen, I don't want you to amen this. Don't amen this. You're like, don't worry, we don't amen you anyway. Yes, I know, but don't amen this. This is what he says. He goes, and then you walk, he goes, he goes, he goes and don't, if you ever doubt your salvation, you just remember the day that you walk the aisle. That's your confidence. No, you don't want to amen there. Because here's why. Because I wonder how many people have heard that message and been told, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, don't ever doubt your salvation, and they died holding on to that as evidence of their salvation, and today they're separated for all eternity from God. Paul says, and this is just one evidence of true salvation, Paul says if you want security and knowing that God has saved you, one of the greatest gleaning examples and illustrations of that salvation is you and my's willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake, to live worthy of the gospel at all times and in all circumstances. And if we are able to do it, is there any of us that can boast in it? just clearly because Christ has granted it to us and he's changed us by his mercy and his grace and he's given us a new being and a new nature inside of us that loves him and wants to obey him. Somebody might say, well, Brother Mike, what happens if we don't do what is right? Yes, there's forgiveness there. There's forgiveness there as we plead and we repent, but there's confidence when we do what is right, even though we suffer for it, that we are truly in him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gospel all over this passage, all over this message. And Lord, now as we come, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, Lord, I just ask that you would move in this place, that if there be any here that need to be born again, they would cry out for mercy and grace. I'm, I'm here. If they want to come and talk or pray, I'd love to pray for them. Maybe there are many of us that sit there and say, Lord, I simply haven't been working, walking worthy of the gospel. Some certain areas right now, church, it's time to confess that and repent of that. Maybe you're one of those that are sitting there going, man, there's a really, really difficult, hard issue for me right now. I've got to be able to make a decision. My whole flesh does not want to do it. But what I'd say is, would you call for the strength for you to be obedient to God and enjoy and rejoice that your decision in doing what is right, even though it's brought suffering, is a demonstration of God's work in your life. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Would you work in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to be down here. You respond and do business with Jesus.